0: The preaching of God's Word comes from what we read earlier in Ezra chapter 8, and beginning from verse 21 through the end of the chapter. We've read the whole of the chapter, so just to highlight for our remembrance these verses. Notice at verse 21, Ezra notes his proclamation of a fast, "...then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God." to seek of him a right way for us, and for our little ones, and for all our substance. And then, in verse 31, the fruit of such seeking, then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go unto Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay in wait by the way." Well, the whole of these verses from 21 through 36 provide us we'll consider and we'll remember that the Lord had given the call unto his people to return. And so, some 60 years earlier, there was work being done, and a 60 years interval had now brought us to the advent of Ezra's service. And Ezra had been given a rich storehouse of treasures, uh, amounting to what could be estimated to be in the millions of dollars worth today, with the much and weighted gold and silver and fine copper, as is stated in verse 27, rich outward treasures, and yet not for the mere enriching of their personal uh, gain, but rather for the dedication of the service to God in Jerusalem. And yet, here is an assembled mass, not merely of men, chief men though they were, but of women and children. And as the passage indicates, there are four months' journey from where they were at the river Ahava unto the city of Jerusalem. And Ezra takes note of those who were their enemy. Notice in verse 22, he mentions those that were the enemy. In the way, now we don't know precisely who this enemy was, but there were commonly, as even today, those who would rob and steal, and in those days, bandits who would uh, work out those uh, typical trade journeys and routes and lay in wait to uh, take captive the treasures that were uh, being transported. Ezra was aware of this. And yet you'll notice that instead of requesting of Artaxerxes protection in the band of soldiers that Artaxerxes doubtlessly could have provided, he takes himself to God by earnest seeking and prayer. Now, we ought not to make a wrong conclusion because it's Nehemiah, the next book, that will indicate he receives such care of soldiers. And so before us is not some uh, uh, ethic to say we resist all such provision, but rather you'll notice it's very particular. Ezra indicates that he was ashamed to require, verse 22, of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way. Why? Not because of it being absolutely unlawful or an indication of lesser faith, but because we had spoken unto the king saying, the hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek Him. And so, in other words, because of their boasting of the Lord in the presence of Artaxerxes, he deemed it imprudent and wrong thus to go to Artaxerxes and say, well, you know how we testify that God is able. Well, we'd really like your support now. Again, this is not an absolute demand for us as we see in Nehemiah the opposite being done as soldiers are provided to him for his return. Well, notice now what Ezra does. He appoints this fast to seek the Lord and God's help. He divides the treasures unto the priests and Levites for transport, which, by the way, would have been no little charge as they were to care not only against watching, against the temptation to take of the gold and silver, which had fallen many men before them, but also to protect it as they would be targeted if any such enemies came to pass. And the journey is there very quickly indicated until their arrival in Jerusalem when they do provide that gold, silver, and copper unto them and offer sacrifices and likewise delivering the king's commissions unto the lesser rulers in Jerusalem and that side of the river." We've indicated this again and again only because Ezra does. That Though this book bears the title Ezra, it is a book preeminently about God. This is true of all of the Bible. The Bible, though focusing upon various individuals throughout its pages, is all a testimony of God's work. And Ezra is careful to indicate this. He does so implicitly as he calls upon God. But then he does so explicitly when he indicates here in verse 31 that the hand of our God was upon us. Think of that expression. The omnipotent hand of God, which is able to bring all of creation into existence, that strength, that power, is now, as it were, protecting this band of men, women, and children through this journey. And notice the contrast that it is that he delivers us, verse 31, from the hand of the enemy. The enemy has a hand. The enemy has the ability to do much that would uh, trouble us and injure us and so on. But greater is he that is with us than he that is in the world. And so Ezra uh, attributes all to the Lord's great blessing. And we ought to see, of course, in our own day, though we don't have to make a journey from the river Ahava to Jerusalem, That each of us, of course, is on a pilgrimage of service to the Lord. And we are called in each of our stations to serve the Lord. Now, This doesn't mean we have to be something similar to Ezra as a scribe. It does mean that we, whether men, women, or children, are to look unto the Lord for his provision as he calls us unto his service. And so, with God's hand upon them... We look for God's hand upon us, and as we do, consider three things. Firstly, they're seeking of God's blessing. Secondly, they're laboring under God's blessing. And finally, they're rejoicing over God's blessing, all of which we hope will minister to our own encouragement as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It might be worthwhile before venturing into the first point of seeking God's blessing, To note this, what is Ezra and this group fundamentally? What is it that they're doing? They're seeking God's kingdom. They're doing so in the very tangible way of going back to Jerusalem and furnishing its service and worship to the glory of God, and that, of course, in accordance to the Scriptures and its teaching of the Old Covenant. But in essence, it agrees with what the church does in every age, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They were called away from what had become comfortable houses and homes in this exile, and they were called to sacrifice those comforts to go forth on this journey and to serve in the cause of God in Jerusalem. Brethren, we likewise are called in our day, perhaps in different concrete circumstances, of course, but nonetheless, surely and really, to be those who serve the Lord and seek the advance of His kingdom. So there's much to glean for our own encouragement as we consider these passages before us. Now notice then, firstly, seeking God's blessing. You have it noted in verses 21 through 23 that they do so with a purpose. What is it that they're seeking of God? Well, we're told in verse 21 that this was to seek of Him, that is to seek of God, a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. The word substance is more than just possessions. It actually indicates the treasures that are with them, which are indicated in all that is weighed out from 24 and onward through verse 30. This great ambassage of people and materials, they realize they need God's blessing that He would provide for them a right That is a good way. So, what is their purpose? Well, it is to seek further provision from God. What kind of provision? Help. They're acknowledging through and through their need for help. Now, we could say already they have been helped. We've seen that already in this chapter. When Ezra took inventory of the people, he saw there were no Levites. Uh, An office in the Old Covenant church, much needed for the service of God in the temple ministry. And so, you'll remember that he sent back with diligence to seek out Levites. And in verse 18, again the expression that is, is there recorded, by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, and so on. They have been helped. They've been helped already as the Lord stirred up Artaxerxes to provide and help with uh, outward things. But they realize they need help now for their journey. Brethren, there's something there for us, is there not, that even as the Lord provides for us, it's not as if he provides for us to our own self-sufficiency. In his providing for us this blessing and that blessing, he's teaching us to continue to seek all of the blessings from him, not with presumption and carelessness, but rather with diligence and faith, and particularly, notice they indicate the enemies, that they're we're in the way. And so they seek the Lord's protection for their journey. And in doing so, they do it trusting God. Now notice this is important. Their trust in God does not lead them to some sort of casual indifference and say, well, whatever will be, will be. That's not at all faith. Faith is stirred up unto God with diligence. And so notice the manner of their seeking such provision. He says in verse 21, I proclaimed a fast. Now, fasting is much mentioned in the Scriptures, and yet in our day it is seemingly little exercise, whether in public or in secret. Christ speaks more of secret fasting when he addresses it in the Gospels, but there are public fasts as well. And to fast is to go without food and drink and other such things, but that can be done in merely an earthly and outward way. So some of you have had to abstain from food and drink for certain procedures. A medical uh, uh, matter arose and you had to go without food or drink and you were on a medical fast and abstaining from food and drink for a period of time to prepare your body for whatever was to take place. That has nothing spiritual in it. It's not unnecessary. It has its purpose. It can be good, but there's no spiritual benefit to it. The point is this. You see this abstaining of food and drink as an accessory for something more fundamental. The fasting is for a purpose. The fasting is not in and of itself the exercise. It's an exercise to strengthen something else. Notice he proclaims the fast there for what purpose? Verse 21, to seek of Him a right way for us. And you'll notice he says in verse 23, So we fasted and besought our God for this. Fasting and prayer are ever joined together when it is a spiritual exercise. You see it even in Nineveh. Remember Jonah as he goes forth and he preaches this uh, testimony of judgment to come, and the king of Nineveh proclaims a fast to all of his citizens that they would call upon God that they might be delivered. So, brethren, what we see here is the seeking of God's blessing for this extraordinary journey to which they had been called is in such a manner as of the highest focus and diligence. They, notice, afflict ourselves, as he says. This is something that's strange to us in a culture that seems to be geared toward only comforting ourselves. Afflict ourselves? Why would anyone do that? Well, what's going on when one fasts in such a way as to afflict ourselves in the presence of God is that we... Acknowledge our lowliness before Him. There is an outward expression going on whereby we're saying we are a weak people. We come to you in the outward display of our own weakness and we look to you as the only source of our life and vitality, of any strength of an, and of any advantage. And so as they're doing so, they are engaged in a spiritual exercise of diligent seeking of the Lord. Now, notice, this isn't something that just sort of pops off at the drop of a hat, as we would say. There's a significant matter coming up. And so, fasting is not for this and that little trite thing. Fasting is, as uh, is, is called, an extraordinary uh, matter. It's an extraordinary discipline for extraordinary situations. Fasting and beseeching God for His blessing. And it's always joined with the spiritual exercise of prayer. Now, Paul doesn't mention fasting when we read earlier in Romans chapter 15, but he does mention prayer. And you'll notice how diligent he was in exhorting the people to do so. He says in verse 30 of chapter 15, Romans, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He doesn't just say, hey, fit this in your prayer request list. He's saying, this is significant. I need you to be so engaged that your prayer before the throne of grace could be likened unto some athlete of the highest level, exerting all of his muscles, all of his energy, all of his strength before the throne of grace. There's a saying that was mentioned by Alexander Moody Stewart that was picked up by those who were influenced by his ministry in the 1800s, and doubtlessly he picked it up from someone else who gave the counsel, you ought to pray until you pray. What does that mean? Well, we know it by experience, don't we? We have our times of prayer and yet we realize in some sense we're going through the motions. We're saying this, and we know it's right. We're saying that, we know it's right. And what Moody Stewart was getting at was we ought not to leave the throne of grace until our souls have been striving for the Lord's blessing. The beautiful image of such striving with Jacob as he wrestles with the angel of the Lord and says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. That's Paul's image. You're to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Someone might look at Paul and say, why are you so concerned? Why are you asking God's people to be so diligent? You're a man of faith. You're a man who realizes that God's sovereignty has already dictated all that shall come to pass. Well, all of that's true. But Paul also discerned that within God's sovereignty, within his purpose, God has established means that he so uses for the advance of his and the procuring of his end. It's not as if we can say, well, the prayers are the efficient cause of the end, but we can say that by God's ordering, the prayers are the instruments God has ordained to bring forth the end. So you can think of it this way in one Sense. Of course, you have a a tremendously gifted uh, musician, perhaps one who plays the violin, and they have all of the skill and all of the knowledge in the world. They've practiced incessantly. Any piece of music could be put before them and they could play it and so on. And yet they use an instrument to bring forth the beauty of the melodies that you hear. And likewise, in Uh, The things of God, God, who can bring forth all, and certainly by his own power, far superior to any musician, yet he has been pleased to ordain that the instrument of prayer, as well as the word and sacraments and other such things, would be so used to bring forth the melody of the advance of his kingdom. And so it's not as if we say, well, I'm going to bring this to pass by my prayer but rather we, with diligence, strive before God and say, O God, You bring it to pass. And what an encouragement that when it is we're before the throne of grace as we lift ourselves up from our knees at the end of our season of prayer, we can reflect and say, what an amazing mercy. God has been pleased to ordain that my prayers should be used by Him for the advance of His kingdom. Who am I to be so engaged in such things and yet here we see the lord's establishing of these means you see it as well and in second thessalonians chapter 3 in a similar vein as paul was in romans 15 acknowledging that there were difficulties before him in second thessalonians and chapter 2 a similar theme is now before us again as paul exhorts the brethren of thessalonica Notice again, and you can remember what he said in Romans 15, uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love of the Spirit. Notice here, we beseech you, the Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 1, uh, brethren, uh, by the Lord, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What an expression of exhortation! And he's encouraging, exhorting them that they would be strong in the Lord. Verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word, and so on. Now notice this in chapter 2, of exhorting them to confidence, then leads to chapter 3. So you see the end, chapter 2, verse 17, comfort your hearts, establish you in every good word and work. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. What's the point of this connection? The assurance of God's protection does not lessen diligence and zeal and prayer. It actually strengthens it. And so in other words, the mark of faith is not little and civil prayers. The mark of faith is the pouring out of our prayers unto God who has ordained prayers for the advance of His kingdom. So let none of us say, well, I've grown in faith because my prayers are not as earnest as they once were. I better trust God. No, it's the opposite. When our prayers cool, When our prayers are less diligent, it's actually a sign that our faith has dwindled. Ezra was a scribe in the law, well trained, very diligent, trusting God. And he doesn't say, listen, men, women, and children, I trust God. You're God's people. He's called us. Let's just say a little civil moment of prayer and venture on our journey. He says, no, we're going to seek God's blessing. A fast is proclaimed for these three days, and we will diligently humble ourselves and seek God's promised blessing. Well, from seeking God's blessing, notice they're laboring under God's blessing. Again, just as they're seeking, we fasted and besought our God for this, and He was entreated of us. The answer is provided as noted. They then, after this fasting and prayer, get to work. Now, this is important. The diligence in prayer does not lead to idleness. The diligence to prayer doesn't cause them to rise up and say, this is all fine, now let's just sort of get on our way. There's diligence now that follows the diligence of prayer. God is at work in them before the throne of grace, and in exercising their soul before the throne of grace, they enter upon their labor with diligence as well. All of this indicating their faith in the Lord. So notice from verse 24 through verse 30, there is a number of steps that take place in the service that was to be given in their journey from the river Ahava to the city of Jerusalem. So you have, firstly, the employing of God's means. So in verse 24 and verse 28, The chief priests are noted together with the Levites. And in verse 28, notice, there's the acknowledging that ye are holy unto the Lord, and the vessels are holy also. What's Ezra getting at? There's a a, a likeness. You are charged as a holy and set-apart people to care for the holy and set-apart things. And so there's the employing of God's means. The diligence doesn't cause us to say, well, God's going to care for us. Let's not worry about the appropriateness and order of God's kingdom. No, the diligence makes them more watchful, makes them more circumspect, to be diligent in the things of God. This is helpful for us today. When we grow in the grace and faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't cause us to say, well, let's just get at it. It causes us to be more watchful In the order that God has established, he takes all of this gold, all of this uh, precious metal, and he thus uh, divides it up among the chief uh, priests and Levites and chief of the fathers that they should carry these consecrated things unto the temple of God. And notice as well, not only do they employ God's means, but Ezra entrusts the provisions and exhorts unto God's honor. And so it is that he weighs out this gold and silver and copper and provides it to them. And notice what is mentioned in verse 29. He says, Watch ye and keep them. The watching is an exhortation as could be likened unto those who would sit upon the tower at night and watch diligently for any approaching Uh, person or army or whatever else it is. It's the sentinel that sits out and watches for any that might come into the camp and would be the first line of warning and defense. And here they're called to watch. Watch over this. Your charge as a holy people to watch over these holy things. It is what Christ calls His disciples to do. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. There's to be a watching over this. Brethren, it's not the watching of the mindless nonsense of television and smartphones that we're just, our eyes are watching and so on. It's the diligent and careful attention to the things before us. Implicit in this is the preciousness of what is provided to them in their care. And likewise, you'll notice that he doesn't only say, watch ye, but he says, keep them, that is, guard them. Now this makes sense immediately when we consider what was put into their charge. Gold, silver, and copper, precious metals that were valuable as much in their day as it is in our day. You can almost consider this, they're about to leave what is known as the uh, the The place of cities and so on, and they 're to go through the wilderness where there were those who would readily uh, take the opportunity to rob them, and so he 's saying, Your life is to be given in defense of these things now brethren this isn 't just about the gold and the copper and the silver, but notice as he says in verse thirty one uh, that, or rather, in verse 28, that all of this silver and gold, it stands as a free will offering unto the Lord God of your fathers. So, in other words, it's not just like you can think of it this way, perhaps. It's not just the armored truck in our day that's transporting cash to banks and ATMs and so on. And you see the uh, armory that's there, and you know that within there's a man with a gun perhaps an AR-15 and whatever else there to protect uh, the money. In fact, it's far superior to that. Of course, there is the financial reality of this precious metal that's being transported, but there's something that transcends it. He's saying you're to watch this, you're to keep this, you're to guard this, because this is dedicated unto our God. Now brethren, here's where the connection makes sense to us, doesn't it? You and I are to watch over and to guard those things that are dedicated unto God. You and I are to devote ourselves unto the preservation of these things. Now, surely this impacts most uh, directly officers of the church as they are to watch over the ministry of the Word and to watch over the flock of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. In fact, elders of their titles as overseers. They are to watch over. As a shepherd watches over the flock, so elders are to watch the same. But all Christians are to watch over the precious deposit of grace in their own souls and keep them. We cannot help but see the connection. Here they're journeying from the land that is not their inheritance to the land that is their inheritance. And as they're making that Perhaps we could call it the perilous journey of that way. There to be protecting that which is devoted to God. Can we not see the connections ourselves of how as we're on a journey unto the inheritance of heaven, that we're to watch over these things unto the glory of our God? Brethren, here's the point. You and I are not to be lulled to sleep with the great privileges that are afforded to us. But rather, we are to be quickened in laborious and diligent exercises of faith, looking over what is ours, what is uh, partitioned unto us and portioned unto us to care for, as Paul calls Timothy to fulfill his ministry. So we can say to every Christian that they are to fulfill that which has been charged unto them, whether as husbands or wives, whether as parents or children, whether as officers in the church, in whatever capacity, we are with diligence to watch over the precious things of the Lord. And preeminently are we not to watch over those precious things of His temple. Now think of this metal. What was it to be used for? It was to be used for the temple of God. It's been dedicated to the house of Of our God. Now we can see a very clear connection. We're to watch over the temple of God today, the people, the living stones, caring for them, watching over them as we ourselves are uh, stones, lively stones, as we're told, and watching over one another with diligence. And you can start to see a connection between. Now that which we've read here, and what we read in Romans 15, as Paul says, you are able to admonish one another. What does that testify of? But a watching over the precious things of God's people, caring for them in this present world, looking forward to the inheritance that is to come. It's impressive, indeed, how these layers and these various fabrics come together as we think of all of this in light of that glorious coming of Christ that is to be ours, and as that's before us, the diligence with which we're to care for one another in the spiritual things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, much more could be said, but notice, thirdly, the rejoicing that is recorded over God's blessing. In verse 31 and verse 32, four months are covered in two verses, with the simplicity of acknowledging God's favor. We departed, and notice the hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us from the hand of the enemy, and of such as lay in wait by the way. And we came to Jerusalem and abode there three days. Notice that before they rejoice, they enjoy... God's blessing. God has, with His hand, protected them. And Brethren, this is nothing peculiar to their experience. It's the testimony of God's care of His people in all ages. You and I sing with great regularity and frequency, and we pray with faith. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why is it that we are able to take up those words in the full assurance That we shall not want. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Why is it we're able to sing those words in the utmost of confidence, but that we are assured that He will bless us as He's promised? He delivers them. He delivered His people from Egypt. He heard their groanings and afflictions. He delivered those who preceded Ezra. He delivers those who follow Ezra. He delivered His apostles in the New Testament and His people and so forth. The point is that God's people are constantly enjoying His blessing. And notice, as they enjoy that, they are led to the faithful discharge of their uh, uh, appointment. Notice, it says, for instance, in verse 33, that after having arrived in Jerusalem they then delivered the gold and the vessels weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merometh, the son of Uriah, the priest, and so on. Verse 34, by number and by weight of every one. And all the weight was written at that time. This is a summary of what would have been most likely a formal report that was issued, thus written at that time. The point is this, every ounce of gold, every ounce of silver, every Uh, particle that they started with was faithfully provided in the temple to its intended use. No one said to themselves, well, you know, here I am serving. I deserve to get a little cut of this gold and silver. These men who were charged, watch ye and keep them, were faithful unto their charge to deliver what they were called To deliver. They were faithful in their service. In other words, as God extends and provides blessing to us, this is to encourage us to be more faithful. You see this in the very thing that is elsewhere written: the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. Well, if that's true, if it is that we're venturing into sin and God is kind, we're not to say, Well, here I am sinning, God's being kind, I'll just carry on in my sin. No, we're to repent. It's true likewise when we're being faithful and God is being generous to us that instead of us compromising or as it were serving our own desires, we're to carry out to the end and do the work that He has called us to do. Again, this doesn't intend that all are called to the ministry and other such things, but every Christian in his or her circumstances is giving a calling to, to live to the glory of God, to serve His people, if a mother to serve her children and love her husband, if a husband to love his bride as Christ loved the church, if a church member to uh, be faithful in the service of the Lord and worship of His name, and all of these different circumstances can be considered. But the point is this, with every blessing God provides to us, it is to be as that which stirs up our soul unto greater faithfulness in our callings. That we would witness these things. Now, to help us in that, it would benefit us if we were more watchful of His blessings. It's intriguing that there's much written about what was written. Notice back in verse 20, when it mentions the uh, 220 nethanims, it says all of them were expressed by name. It's regarding an account that was recorded. And now here, it mentions that all of this was written at that time. There's a record. What's being done is, Ezra is taking inventory of all that God has provided, all that God has done. You and I know the opposite of that when we record all of our miseries. And it somehow sucks our attention to the miseries. And what if Impact does that have, but that we become grumbly and complaining in our sorrows? But instead, when we start to take inventory of all of His mercies, all of His kindnesses, what does that do but stir us up unto a more faithful uh, testimony of praise unto His name? David Dixon in his sermons on lamentations indicates. A statement that ought to stay with each of us. He says, even in our greatest sorrows, we should remember that God's dealings are not according to our deservings. We always deserve, by our sins, justice and judgment against us. And even in our worst, God is dealing with us far more mercifully than we deserve. Well, here, what are we to do when there's been nothing but the enjoyment of God's blessing? We're to then return thanks and praise unto His name. And we see that, as it is in verses 35 and 36, and they're acknowledging of the Lord's mercies. And so it is that as they deliver and fulfill their uh, uh, calling, then the children of those that had been carried away, which were come out of the captivity, What do they do? They worship God. They offer the burnt offerings, they offer the sin offering, and they worship the Lord. What's the point? They don't come and sit down and say, well, now we're done. Let's prop up our feet. They actually come and they give thanks and praise to God with the first fruit, as we could say, of their substance. But notice what's indicated particularly is the burnt offering and the sin offering. This is intriguing to us because those sacrifices in particular were testimonies that they deserved judgment. The burnt offering was fully consumed by fire. The sin offering was a similar indication of their need for propitiation and acceptance by terms of a substitute and in terms of grace and in terms of the blood that ought to have been shed by them is being shed by another. In other words, all of this bountiful provision to them never once caused them to lose sight of their standing before God in terms of grace by the blood of a substitute. Brethren, at the height of our enjoyments of mercies in this life, far from this lessening our sense of our need of the blood of Christ, it is to heighten our sense that we who have sinned against God should enjoy such favor of God is a testimony that we enjoy it solely by the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way sometimes people speak, it's striking to us. It ought to jar in our minds as the words enter our ears to think like, well, why are you so concerned about the blood of Christ? You know, you're a, you've been saved. Well, brethren, if your ears were open to the praises of heaven, you would be overwhelmed with the fixation upon the blood of Christ. In other words, the assurance of salvation does nothing to diminish our delight in that salvation by the blood of Christ, it actually enlarges our heart to say praise be unto God and my whole hope is by the blood of Christ for which I will praise His name both now and forever. Many of you will be familiar with the name of Charles Hodge. And he recorded once, as his son likewise indicated, that where there was a firm acknowledgement of the need of propitiation, there would always be a fervent piety and devotion of praise to God. And he said, Where you find either of them, you'll find the other together. So, where you find fervent prayer, you'll find uh, an acknowledgement of the need of propitiation. And where you find the acknowledgement of the need for propitiation, you'll find the prayer and devotion unto the Lord. And Brethren, this is the case throughout all the pages of Scripture. And likewise, throughout all time and eternity, the highest and the most resounding praise in heaven is by them who are fixed upon the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy is the Lamb that has been slain to receive glory, honor, and praise now and forever. And we see that, do we not? As the Lord has mercifully attended His uh, ambassage from Ahava to Jerusalem, so now they come and they return thanks. In several weeks, Lord willing, we'll return to the Gospel of Luke and we'll come to the uh, testimony of the ten lepers that were healed. And... As they're on their way in accordance to Christ's word, the Lord heals them as they are to present themselves to the priests, and one, but one, returns to Christ and says thank you. Brethren, many times the reality of our petitions is shown to be but a selfish purpose. And it's shown that way when we fail to return thanks and praise to God for the mercy we sought. These men who with earnestness there for uh, several days did fast and seek the Lord and now enjoyed His blessing for four months and arrive in safety to Jerusalem and there surrounded by others of extended family, they fail not but to give thanks and worship the Lord God. Well, though you and I are not in the same concrete journey as these in Ezra's day, yet in our own pilgrimage we face trials and dangers which elicit from us these prayers for the Lord's mercies. And we ought to be mindful that when we sense dangers and trials that are on the horizon or potential before us, we ought to be diligent to be sure to pray unto God for His help and blessing and trusting Him as He has promised. Remember that Ezra didn't invent this journey. Ezra didn't say, you know, it would be high time and it would be good to do this. But there was a call from God that Ezra should pursue this. And so we ought to realize that we're not to venture into something that there's no call for. We don't just sort of say, well, that's a need, I'll go venture to it. But rather we look to God to guide us unto these things. And when it is He does, we have the great assurance, whatever the trials are, to take ourselves to God and to beseech Him for His mercies. We are not to be those who run, not having been sent, nor are we to be those who after vows make inquiry. There are those in a variety of ways are to vow unto God what they'll do, and then after they've made their vow, say, what did I vow, and can I get out of this, and so on. No, We wait for the clarity and leadership of God, and having it, we follow Him, knowing that whatever obstacles come up, and there will be obstacles and trials and difficulties and suffering and uh, miseries along the way, we know that our God is faithful and shall guide us even unto death, and after death, receive us into glory. Let us also be those who ever return thanks to God for His many blessings in our journeys in this world while we acknowledge our own sins and rely upon the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us commit our way unto the Lord that He may guide us. But as we do, let us be sure that we're seeking not our glory, but His glory. This is what Ezra was doing. This is what these men and women and children were doing. They were seeking not their own, but they were seeking their God's praise. And as we dedicate ourselves, as God has called us to the same, we may likewise rely upon Him as He has promised to provide us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Would you stand with me for prayer?